Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your fortnightly look at the evidence in COVID and the world of evidence generally. So this week we're going to be doing a big focus on vaccines and we'll also hear a little bit about a report that's set to change the landscape of uh, evidence, at least when it comes to some drugs and devices in the UK. As always, in Talk Evidence, we're joined by Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor, and Carl Hennigan, Editor of the BMJ's Evidence-Based Medicine Journal. They're both GPs and they're both on the line now. Hiya. Hi, Duncan. Hi, Duncan. Hey, welcome back. So um, before we get into vaccines, uh, we've talked about how COVID's going to be causing issues with other medical care. And uh, we'll see some data about that down the line, we were saying. And Helen, you've been looking at some that's actually just come out. I have, yes. A little bit of non-COVID illness in the time of COVID. Um, There's an interesting study in The Lancet describing a drop in presentations for acute coronary syndrome in England using data from uh, a database called Secondary Uses Service Admitted Patient Care. Um, Catchy, isn't it? But apparently it updates faster than hospital episode statistics data, which people might be more familiar with. And the paper's authors, Marion Moffam and colleagues, say that we know there's been a drop in presentation with acute coronary syndrome and with linked percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, during COVID-19 in countries like Austria, Italy, Spain and the US. But we don't know whether these rates have picked up again and we don't know whether there are particular types of patients or types of ACS that have been most affected. So they looked at data from 2020 and compared it to 2019. And what they found was that from two weeks before the lockdown, there was a reduction, particularly in admissions for non-ST elevation MI by around 42%, uh, which stretched until the end of March. Uh, And that was more like 23% for ST elevation MI. And then things started to increase again. And by the end of May, admissions rates for ACS had partly recovered, but remained low or lower by about 16%. Uh, They didn't discover much difference by demographics of those patients. And they found that there was an increase of patients who had PCI on the day of admission and a reduction in their median length of stay. Now, this is just a descriptive study and it doesn't tell us what happens to these people in the long term. Uh, But it made me think, Carl, of something that we'd been talking about, that COVID is kind of acting like a natural experiment in many conditions. And it seems likely that people with missed MI might well come to harm. But it's interesting to consider how reduced or altered care um, in other acute or chronic conditions might ultimately be linked to different benefit and harm profiles amongst patients. So I think this is really interesting. There are some, there's been some bit in the Office for National Statistic data that reports each week in England and Wales and looks at death and death with COVID on the death certificate. So they're registered death across England and Wales. And each week you can look at different settings like hospitals, care homes and homes. And just to say right now overall, for the last three weeks, we have seen deaths under the five-year average. From March the 13th, they were above and way above excess deaths. But it's interesting, we've had less deaths in hospitals and care homes, but we're still seeing excess deaths compared to the five-year average in the home setting. And this has happened every week 
throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the interesting issues is this year so far, there's been 87,000 deaths in the home, but only 2,322 COVID deaths. And so when you look at the data, more than 80% of the excess deaths in the home setting are not COVID. And this is starting to suggest we are seeing that lots of people have not been presenting, have been having heart attacks or acute coronary events and not seeking out care. And this is worrying in effect, because what it suggests is the public out there were so scared of coming and presenting to healthcare setting that they stayed at home. And that was not just harmful to them in many cases and in thousands of cases that led to excess death. So I think there's that sort of acute issue, which is a big, big phenomenon, and it might apply to other diseases. Compared to the the sort of chronic activities, blood pressure, diabetes control, but also screening activities, we'll start to see what's been the impact of all of these issues. And it's been particularly interesting to me because across the board in primary care, in both what we call the regular day-to-day setting and the acute setting, we've seen a significant reduction in people coming forward presenting. Some of that will help us because potentially some of it is self-limiting, doesn't need consultation, but I assume some of it will be the important stuff and this natural experiment. We should be over the next year or two to be able to understand what difference it's actually made. This week we've seen some sensational news uh, starting to come out about sort of phase one trials of of vaccines and the manufacturers are are saying how promising their results are being. But I suppose that's not really surprising given the number of vaccine uh, candidates being developed at the moment. And uh, Helen, you have gone all out this week talking uh, to to a range of people about vaccines. Yes, I think I'm less data obsessed than Carl. I just get obsessed with topics. Previously, it was diagnostic tests, wasn't it? And now, now my obsession's vaccines. And I've been wanting to get to this for a while, well, COVID vaccines in particular. I think there's sort of huge interest in whether they might prevent a new wave of infection, whether they might reduce health systems from being overwhelmed, whether they can protect those people most at risk of death and bad outcomes in COVID, um, and whether they might protect high-risk workers like uh, doctors and nurses. But there has been quite widespread scepticism at the same time about the likelihood of successful vaccines coming because the virus and its epidemiology is altering. And there are concerns that it's been difficult to develop vaccines for other coronaviruses like SARS and MERS um, and for other RNA viruses like dengue. So why would these ones succeed? Um, So if you have a look on uh, WHO, they have a list of vaccine candidates out there. And on the 13th of July, their list contained 137 candidate vaccines at a preclinical stage for COVID and an additional 23 that are in clinical evaluation with just a, a very small number of those being in phase three trials. And there are lots of different types. You'll come across this jargon term or may hear it platforms or novel platforms in vaccine speak. And there seem to be 
as well as familiar terms like live and inactivated vaccines that people may be familiar with. Lots of newer kinds using protein subunits. We've heard quite a lot about the spike protein using DNA, messenger RNA vaccines and replicating and non-replicating vector vaccines like adenovirus. I have to say it's all felt quite distant to me, but the headlines and public expectation and political pressure does seem to be mounting. And last week, I became aware that the International Coalition of Medicines Regulatory Authorities, ICMRA, had met to discuss the type of evidence they wanted to see on vaccines. And I thought this would be a good moment for us to pause and think through vaccines and evidence more carefully what type of evidence do we need to see to know that a vaccine works and so this week as Duncan said I've gone a bit all out we've spoken to an academic a regulator and a manufacturer to get their perspectives on this particularly focusing on the clinical development and the larger phase three studies which will inform those kind of regulatory and practice decisions so we begin with Peter Doshi who's an Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Health Services Research at the University of Maryland. He's also an Associate Editor at the BMJ. Um, He's got an interest in politics and science of vaccines um, and has looked at both influenza and HPV over the last 10 years or so. And he talked us through, using kind of classic EBM principles, um, the type of evidence we want to see, breaking it down into a PICO question. So this idea of breaking it down by population, intervention comparison and outcomes. Strictly speaking, you want to study the vaccine in the population that you plan on using the vaccine. And you want to make sure that you really focus in on all the subgroups where you have any reason to think the vaccine might work differently. So the elderly here are going to be very key, right? Because they're the most vulnerable from the disease. We know there's quite a lot of complexity in terms of the vaccines being tested. And in vaccine jargon, I've heard of these being called sort of novel platforms, the idea that you might have messenger RNA or vector vaccines. Um, There seems to be a lot of new elements um, around these vaccines and and perhaps a need to understand and learn about their their benefits and harms. How do you reflect on those um, complexities? Well, I think when we have so much going on in terms of novelty here, I think it really underscores the importance of selecting the right control. And in this case, the gold standard inert placebo, because you really want to know what happens in the absence of getting that experimental platform, experimental vaccine. And so the RCT with the inert control really provides the optimal research design to figure out the answer to that question. So let's come to the outcomes. What are the range of outcomes that you could pick here of interest? I think we can broadly divide this into clinical versus public health outcomes. So for the clinical outcome that is probably the the most classic one would be your symptomatic illness, perhaps adding lab confirmed a confirmation that indeed this is SARS-CoV-2. On the other side of ledger, you have your public health outcomes, which are clinical, but I think they have major public health implications. Complications, hospitalizations, deaths. These are arguably more public health focused outcomes because they really have an effect on the system. On the safety side, however, 
I think there's a very good argument for needing to track safety outcomes over a lot longer period of time. And I guess even with the benefits here, there's a complexity because if we go for quite short-term duration trials, we might know over the next few weeks or months what's what's the risk of you getting the infection or getting seriously ill with the infection. But we may not know whether that lasts a year or or two years or whether you need a repeat vaccination. That's right. We we won't know anything about long lasting immunity, the duration. We also have another variable in this, uh, which is the disease itself, the virus itself, and does it stay constant? How does the vaccine work against a variant of the virus if the virus mutates um, in the future? What do you know, um, if anything, around whether they've set a bar to say this is what a working vaccine would do for us? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and it actually gets very interesting here because uh, I know that the FDA, the US FDA, has uh, put out some guidance. And these are non-binding recommendations. Um, but the FDA is saying that they want to see 50% efficacy as defined by symptomatic lab-confirmed illness. So that so would mean the vaccine would reduce the number of symptomatic illnesses by half, and that would make it worthwhile in, in their opinion. Right. And they said that there, you know, there's always going to be a confidence interval around that reduction. Mm-hmm. They're talking about 50% as the point estimate, but they're willing to accept something with less efficacy down to 30% is what they put in their nine binding recommendations. But what's interesting, I think, not just beyond the numbers, which some people have said this is um, really grossly too low. That's that's not nearly enough efficacy because you'd leave someone, if it's only 30% effective, that seven out of 10 people would derive no efficacy from this is, is sort of the simple way of looking at that. And so a lot of people have already criticized that saying, you know, that's, that's really too low of a standard. Um, but I think what's even more interesting is, is that the regulator here, the FDA, has accepted the notion that it's okay to power your trials based on symptomatic illness. Well, look, it was really interesting there. We had a sort of whirlwind tour of how you develop a vaccine in a very short period of time. Preclinical testing. Researchers give the vaccine to animals, see if it actually gives you an immune response. Then you go to phase one. You get healthy volunteers. Look if it's safe. Look if you get an immune response in volunteers. Then you're moving into phase two, three trials, which you can actually combine because phase two, you're looking at the dose and the safety and then moving that dose into phase three. And that's where you're giving it into the actual population of interest. And just as Peter said, you want to make sure you're giving them the most affected, the elderly, the most likely to have the outcome of interest. So Peter mentioned the US regulator there, the FDA. Um, and I said that I'd seen this report from an international group of regulators who had met to discuss the sort of evidence they wanted to see as part of the International Coalition of Medicines Regulatory Authorities. Next, I spoke to Marco Cavallari, Head of Biological Health Threats and Vaccine Strategy. He chairs the European Medicines Agency's COVID-19 Task Force and also co-chaired the meeting in June. 
do you want to take us through some of the key things that the regulators are looking for, particularly in the phase three studies? I'm quite glad to say that we come up with the general consensus of several of these aspects, in particular, what will be the endpoints for these studies, the population to be included, and of course, with the important remark that we would like to see elderly and risk group as much as possible included in these trials, which of course also depends on whether we have sufficient preliminary clinical evidence from earlier trials around the safety and immunogenicity in uh, various age groups. And and then also uh, the other important aspect that we would like these studies to be as robust as possible so that we can make a good evaluation of these vaccines in terms of protection across also different subgroups and also not forgetting that other endpoints beside the primary one of prevention of uh, COVID-19 as a symptomatic disease, uh, and in particular, uh, the prevention of severe disease uh, would be important secondary endpoint to be considered. I guess those endpoints um, are quite important to, to pause and consider. And the regulators, you mentioned symptomatic infection was was the primary outcome that you that you're going to be looking for. Um, what what's the basis of choosing an outcome um, which is infection as opposed to choosing um, hospitalisation with infection or perhaps death from infection? Is that a sort of feasibility issue in terms of the size of the studies, or or do you think symptomatic infection is a sufficiently important outcome in itself? Yes, I think the general agreement was that uh, uh, symptomatic uh, infection, so not in, not asymptomatic infection. In fact, uh, we at DMA, we don't think that uh, uh, asymptomatic infection per se is, is a good endpoint for these uh, uh, initial pivotal trials. But we do believe that uh, preventing uh, symptomatic disease of uh, you know, any severity would be a good starting point for demonstrating the efficacy of the vaccines. This is the way that normally we approve vaccines, so we never demand endpoints that are about severity. The, the severity is also an important area to be explored, but we fear that in terms of feasibility could have made it more challenging. And moreover, finding a good definition of severity was not so straightforward. Therefore, uh, there was general agreement that uh, um, symptomatic uh, uh, COVID-19 was a good way forward for testing these vaccines in these studies. Do, do the EMA or other regulators give a threshold in that way? Uh, I think we at DMA, uh, we fully understand uh, the, the position of the FDA, but of course, uh, we tend to be prudent on this because uh, at the end of the day, it will be a matter of benefit-risk assessment. We don't know how effective these vaccines are going to be, and we don't know yet what is their safety profile. So it's very difficult for us uh, to preempt completely with fixed number uh, what would be the, 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 the minimal acceptable uh, efficacy level that uh, could uh, uh, determine a positive benefit-risk. So, so that's why we've been a bit more cautious in not expressing clear-cut views on any specific threshold for, for, for the time being. Uh, even if, of course, we do recognize the value of having studies that at least are power uh, to determine a certain minimal uh, level of efficacy in the studies. 
And do you have any sense of what you anticipate the main um, safety or, or harm problems with these vaccines are? Because they're quite heterogeneous in terms of how they how they work and their mechanisms. Yes, we have different classes of vaccines based on different platform technologies. And uh, some of them, like the messenger RNA, as you all know, have not yet been approved for uh, human use so far. So uh, still a lot of unknowns that we need uh, to better understand. And do you have a sense, you mentioned that everything is moving very fast, of when you will start to consider um, not just having conversations with some of the manufacturers of the vaccines about the study designs, but actually making decisions yourselves. That, of course, is very difficult to predict at this stage. And in the best case scenario, if we assume three, four months uh, from the start of the phase three trials, it means that uh, even for the most advanced one, it will not be before uh, the end of the year. And it looks from the from the phase three studies that I've had a look at um, that actually the primary outcome, um, which seemed to be coalescing around, as you say, symptomatic infection at 12 months after you've had the vaccine. It seems that actually the the efficacy for that primary outcome is going to be much, much longer than that, more like a year, possibly longer. The, the, the studies will be powered uh, uh, in a way that as soon as you uh, collect a sufficient number of events, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the outcome may be positive and therefore, you know, the primary endpoint reached uh, whenever this happens. And it might well be that if there is high circulation of the virus, this would occur indeed within three, four months from the start of the study. Of course, we would be very interesting to look into the protection in the long term. Uh, as indeed we would expect that the uh, the antibodies will uh, decline over time. And uh, uh, of course, we need to see how fast this is going to be and uh, which might be a bit of a problem. Uh, and, and therefore, we are um, urging companies to try to maintain uh, subjects into the studies on their allocated arm as long as possible let's say for one year, but maybe even two years, because that would give us some important data in terms of long-term protection and any potential safety issue that would emerge uh, due to uh, the declining level of antibodies. I see. So it may be that you're looking at infection rates at, at, at time periods much under um, the 12-month mark. Possibly, possibly. So that was Marco giving us a regulator's perspective. Um, finally, I was interested to hear from um, a manufacturer of a vaccine. Looking at the WHO list, there was a huge number of them. And we spoke with Philip Cruz, who's vaccine medical director for GSK in the UK. And they have a preclinical vaccine in development in collaboration with Sanofi Pasteur. I was interested in understanding a bit more about how Corona vaccine work has been for them. Now what you're looking is an outbreak paradigm where we're looking at an accelerated phase of development. So from a decade, from 10 years, you want to scale it down to 12 to 18 months. And so you, you need really an unprecedented team effort across all sectors, not just uh, vaccine manufacturers, but also from regulators, from academic institutions as well, from governments, from funding agencies. So this is where there should be a all hands on deck approach. 
Because there's a lot of candidate vaccines that I've seen. I had a glance at this WHO list and I think there was at least 140 odd vaccines on there. Is that normal for for vaccine development? (laughs) No, not really. I'll, I'll be quick to answer that. And for me, it's amazing just to see that. And I probably saw that list uh, with you at the same time. It's really 140. <laughs> and we look at the, the ones in clinical phases, it's at 23. Um, so, I mean, you know, this is really remarkable in the manner of speed and uh, the magnitude of everyone involved in the research against uh, uh, COVID. I wonder if you could give a sense for listeners of the evolving picture of the immunology of um, coronavirus and how that might influence um, the likelihood that a vaccine works or the type of vaccine that we need, um, those kind of things. And that is a very relevant topic to address, Helen, especially with regards to uh, studies that are coming out, especially what we see as longitudinal studies where you monitor the behavior of the antibodies being produced and how it wanes. What we don't know is really what the protective level is in terms of antibodies and also in terms of getting that memory of your uh, T cell, uh, thereby a repeated exposure. Will you elicit an antibody response to that? Will it be protective? So these are the questions that needs to be addressed. And when you're looking at clinical trials, That's why the recommendation by regulatory authorities is to at least monitor it for a year. And how do you base that? Because when you look at the other coronavirus studies, so the one previous to the SARS-CoV-2, you see a behavior there that the antibodies, the neutralizing antibodies wane. And the results at the time period is you're looking at at least a year to two, three years. However, for SARS-CoV-2, we see a shorter time frame, a shorter duration. But that doesn't really tell us a huge thing because what we don't know is if there's memory being induced such that a repeated exposure would suddenly boost your immune response. So there's that memory imprint. So back to the studio to unpick this vaccine adventure with Carl and Duncan. And I think the biggest issue that struck me is that I still felt quite uncertain about how everyone is defining whether a vaccine for COVID-19 works. And perhaps it highlighted for me the need for greater discussion um, amongst um, those people who are all collaborating now and greater agreement around what a working vaccine looks like Um, and in particular this contrast around the trials um, planning to run for 12 months um, and this sense that I got from the regulators that decisions are going to be made way ahead of that time perhaps having to use interim analyses or some of the secondary outcomes and I think that's going to create really difficult ethical dilemmas when it comes to licensing and deciding whether to use them um, and whether that opportunity cost is worth it. I think it's interesting, though, that it's very clear to me the two most important outcomes are are hospitalisation and death, because that's what's basically shut down society, put us all in lockdown around the globe, closed schools, closed businesses and tank the economy. So I think it's important we set out these principles on what outcomes should be important and not accepting 
some lower bar, which will lead to confusion. You may end up with an inferior vaccine. There are other ones out there that need to be tested appropriately. And I think we are in this vaccine race, acceleration of research that we've seen throughout this pandemic, which has lowered the bar. It worries me that the European agency is saying we're not having a threshold. I think the FDA is making sense in what it's wanting to look for, particularly when you're accepting vaccines from manufacturers who've never produced a vaccine before, are using new technologies like messenger RNA that's not been proven to work yet. And if we don't go down that route, we may end up with utter confusion where there's not just one or two, you said literally 100 vaccines all on the market that are showing small T-cell response, small antibody responses, and we're not clear how long that lasts for, and what does it mean. What I am concerned about at the moment is everybody is promising we'll get there first. I would like people to say we'll get there with the right outcome in the right population. So in that, Marco said that uh, you know the FDA has set a base that they're looking to, to decide um, what a, a baseline for efficacy is. How do you work out what that should be for a vaccine? Is there like a, a, a formula for um, how efficacious a vaccine needs to be in a population to be worthwhile? No, but there are there will be formulas for minimum antibody response and T cell response that 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 gives you a, a potential vaccine that has immune potential, and that's set out. But when it comes to actually the important differences in a population, this is where we should be involving consumers patients and members of the public and this is the important aspect of when you're designing these trials and I think this is what the agencies like the European Medicines Agency and FDA should be doing more of what are the endpoints that we should want to have as a society and it's interesting to me we do ask for that in regular research we think about asking even at the BMJ tell us how your patients were involved but when it comes to these critical issues and the fact this vaccine affects so much of society we should be asking them what do they want so that this can be approved. The caveat to this is many of these will be approved based on antibody and immune responses. That's not the same as saying somebody like NICE has looked at the technology and said it's cost effective. And that's an important distinction. And cost effective means it has clearly been shown to deliver benefits that are important to us in society and it's affordable at a certain level. And that is normally a cost per quality, quality adjusted life year of about £30,000 per year. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Carl, was about adaptive study designs. And fortuitously, there was also a publication in the BMJ uh, last month, the Research Methods and Reporting uh, paper, which is actually a, a, a reporting statement. So guidance for researchers on how to write up their papers. But they also help readers uh, identify and, and appraise research, I think. And I heard... Philip from DSK describing um, some aspects of the adaptive design of um, some of these vaccine studies. Um, and Carl, I wanted you to just expand on whether these are this is okay because I I think in many people's understanding, a trial is something you should design at the beginning and then you stick with that plan. And and there's something sort of um, uh, 
um, underhand about changing things as you go along. But but I can see that there is obviously a legitimate methodological approach to, to making changes. So so talk us through some of them. Well, look, a very good example was we mentioned this phase two and phase three trials. In a phase two, you might not be clear about the actual dose. You might have one dose. You might have uh, more than one dose you want to give to individuals. And an adaptive trial means you can set the protocol out in a way that you start with the two doses compared to placebo. And over time, instead of stopping the trial and then unblinding it, reporting it, and then starting a brand new trial, an adaptive trial allows you to continue. It allows you to drop one of the arms that's shown not to be effective and continue to recruit to the dose that's working. And I do think that's an important uh, step forward because trials are very costly. B is it does introduce a delay if you have to stop the trial and then restart a new trial for the dose that's shown to be worked. So an adaptive, and what's important here, is setting out very clearly up front what the adaptations are as opposed to what we call switching outcomes or switching trial protocols. And I think it's very helpful in the development of drugs and it's very helpful in the development of vaccines to make it efficient and cost-effective to do the trials in the population that matter. Um, and I noticed, uh, Carl, that this is a paper that the senior author on it was um, Doug Altman, a long-time colleague of yours and, and um previously uh, chief statistician at the BMJ, uh, who died uh, not so long ago. So this must be possibly his last paper, I don't know, or, or one of the last. Yeah, what an amazing person Doug was, amazing statistician. There's a quote in there that says, to maximise the benefit to society, you need to not just do research, but do it well. Oh my gosh, I wonder what Doug would be thinking now within this COVID outbreak. Boy, could we do with his words of wisdom sometimes in way the data has been reported, some of the poor quality research that's been going on. And Doug's position here was really to set out some basic principles in how research is reported, uh, how it's registered on trial registers, how it protocols are developed. And he was it's so influential in improving the quality of research, it's, it is... Uh, hard to describe it but I think um, go back to the editorial uh, 20 plus years ago that we need not more research but less research we need it done better in a higher quality way and that's what Doug was known for. So yeah you you mentioned um, Doug Altman there and uh, everything he said about the importance of getting research right, not being research waste, and uh, and probably listening to, to patients as well. And this week has just seen uh, the Cumberledge report, and uh, regular listeners to our podcast will have heard that one coming out in the uh, feed a little bit earlier. Um, but Carl, you gave evidence um, at that inquiry about evidence. Yeah, so this is, you said directly the Cumberledge, it's the Independent Medicines and Medical Device Safety Review, IMMDS for short. And what it does is point out, quoted, the system is not safe enough for those taking medications in pregnancy or being treated using new devices and techniques. It's very clear across the board there are significant problems within medicine. And I would say to everybody, go and read the report because it is at times truly shocking about some of the issues that have gone on in the past. 
There are a number of recommendations such as to declare conflicts, a payments register, the appointment of a patient safety commissioner, which will impact substantially on patient safety in the future. And these are all recommendations. They're not legislative at the moment. They do not affect the avoidable harm that has been caused to hundreds of thousands of women in the case of Balcrate and Primidoth and their children and in the case of vaginal mesh. But I think the most important thing is they are long overdue an apology, and that's the first recommendation requires, that this government has to accept the avoidable harm and should immediately issue a fulsome apology on behalf of the healthcare system. And I think that's an incredibly important thing to do right now. And then there are a number of issues that in the recommendations that require a coordinated and concerted approach to their implementation. Yeah, and I think we'll come back to talk about those in more detail. And it's talk about regulation, as we've been talking about all day in this podcast, uh, conflicts of interest, which uh, Helen is a perennial interest of yours. So um, out there, if you are listening and you're interested in finding out more about that, then subscribe to us. Uh, talk Evidence has its own podcast feed now on its own podcast page so have a look on wherever you get your podcast from just search for bmj talk evidence right so i think that's the end of the podcast this week um so it's goodbye from me goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me take care at that. <laughs>